his permission to return to Jerusalem stocked with wealth and with raw materials for the temple. The same Artaxerxes will 13 years later give permission to Nehemiah to come back and check out Jerusalem with regard to the welfare of the city and of the people there. In return for granting these privileges, the king was to receive some benefit from the expedition. It benefited Artaxerxes to avoid uprisings or feelings of anger against him in order to have peace in that part of his empire. And that was always important to ancient kings. They wanted peace in the remote parts of the empire because it cost them money to send troops out to those areas to quell rebellion. So he was going to get something out of it as well. Ezra was faithful in teaching the Word of God for the 13-year period in between the time that he gets there and the time that Nehemiah gets there. But it's clear from the situation by the time that Nehemiah gets there that the people are hearing it, but they're not getting it. There's some disconnect between what Ezra is teaching them, because he seems by all accounts to be an incredible priest, incredible scribe. He's the model for the ancient scribes. But even though he's doing a wonderful job, the people are not getting it. And by the time Nehemiah gets there, they're less than consistent in their application of the Word of God. That would be the nice way to put it. So God sends Nehemiah, a man who is more of a political leader than a religious leader, to motivate the Jews living in the land to complete the mission that they had begun and rebuild the wall so Jerusalem could once again be the center of Yahweh worship that it was designed to be. So you have Nehemiah, the priest, is coming and teaching them the Word of God 13 years' worth. But somewhere along the line, they're not getting the message. So Nehemiah comes in. He's perhaps more of a lead, the leader type than Ezra. Both of them have their roles, but Nehemiah is more the leader. He pushes them over the top to get the job done. Under Nehemiah's principled leadership and with God's enablement, the wall was completed in just 52 days in spite of, as we've studied, intense opposition from Sambalat and Tobiah as well as resistance for some of the Jews that were even working on the wall. So Nehemiah had resistance from outside, and he had resistance from inside. Yet with God's help, Nehemiah, this principled leader, rebuilds the wall in 52 days. Ezra comes back to the land in approximately 458 B.C. Thirteen years later, in 445 B.C., Nehemiah comes back. Their leadership... One's a religious leader or spiritual leader. One's more of a political leader, although they both overlap a bit. Their terms run together at least from 445 on, but we don't know exactly how long. We know that Nehemiah stays for 25 years, from 445 to the year 420. How long Ezra stays on, we don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us. He could have stayed on the whole time, but most likely... He either, either died or went back to Persia sometime during Nehemiah's leadership. As chapter 7 begins, we learn that there's some concern on the part of Nehemiah that after this wall is rebuilt, that there are too few inhabitants of Jerusalem. What he does in verses 1 through 4, we studied these last time, he sets certain procedures into practice that would ensure that Jerusalem was a safer place to live. He took reasonable precautions 
to assure that Jerusalem was a safer place to live. He took the temple guard, for example, away from guarding the temple gates themselves and put them to guard the gates to the city. He made sure that the gates of the city were only open at certain times of the day. They wouldn't be open all day and all night. They would only be open probably in the, from noon up until maybe 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So there were limited periods of time when people could go. But these are reasonable precautions to make Jerusalem a safer place. It's not sinful for Christians to take reasonable precautions to protect their property or their life. That doesn't mean we have less faith in, in God to take care of us, but it does mean that we're using the resources that God has given us. Part of the overall strategy is to get more people from the outlying areas to come live in Jerusalem so that Jerusalem would be a, not only a center of Yahweh worship, but would be a safer place to live because if there are too few people that live there, marauding bands could overrun it more easily. Then we have chapter the rest of chapter 7, which is a listing. It's an interesting place to put it, but it's a listing just like we saw in Ezra chapter 2 of the people that came back, not with Ezra and not with Nehemiah, but with Zerubbabel years and years and years before. He puts this list in here to encourage the people that were there to remember God's faithfulness to go out all that time to accomplish something that it didn't look like would ever be accomplished, bringing all the Jews back into the land. I draw your attention just to one verse. It's all the way down in verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360 individuals. That's a relatively small number compared to the people that were carted off and taken off into exile. It's really way too small for them to be a powerful entity, either politically, possibly even with regard to Yahweh worship. So this group needed to grow. And if they'll get into the city, then they will grow at a greater pace, a greater rate. That's what's going on in chapter 7. I don't intend to go through every one of the names on this list. I know some of you who read ahead were hoping that I would. And if I get a show of hands, I'll do it. I had a discussion one time when I was going to school before I went to before I went to Dallas Seminary. And there's a theology class, and in that theology class, the, the statement was made, and I talked about it tonight, all scriptures God breathed was profitable. And so discussion ensued, and I and I said, since I just said what was on my mind back in those days, I'm not the polished person that keeps them, their thoughts to themselves like I am now. But I just said, well, that's, uh, I said, you're misapplying that. Yes, you know, every bit of the scripture is equally as important as every other bit of the scripture. I said, no, it's not. Not, not to an individual's spiritual life in any one given moment. Now, it doesn't mean it's less inspired by God. But you, you can't tell me that the dimensions of the wall of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 4 are as important to the spiritual life of a believer as Ephesians chapter 2 is. You'd have a real hard time making that case to any sane human being. It doesn't mean that it wasn't profitable, particularly for those people at that time. But certainly all scripture is God-breathed. Now, verse 49, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gerar. Now, I could, we could take 30 minutes on that, but I just really don't think it would be as profitable as if we summarized that and told you the reason Nehemiah put that there was for the encouragement of the people that were reading it. So they could see God's great blessings that he had put up, poured out upon them for all those years. Now, guess what? It's time to get going. So chapter 7 is an encouragement chapter. Then in chapter 8, we find that Nehemiah 
after the wall is completed and after these precautions have been put in place, the temple guard has been moved, the gates have a regular schedule where they're going to be open and shut, Nehemiah doesn't move back to Persia after all this is accomplished. Particularly after the accomplishment of rebuilding the walls, one might think if that was his primary goal, if that was his only goal, then once that's finished, he's going back to Persia. But he doesn't. And this demonstrates to us that while rebuilding the wall was important, there was more to Nehemiah's mission than just rebuilding a simple physical structure. His desire at the end of the day, was to see Jews fully reestablished in the land, worshiping Yahweh the way they had been designed to worship him. Physical structures were now in place for that to happen. The temple had already been rebuilt, you recall that. There was no wall around Jerusalem. All the physical structures are now in place. But the physical structures, as important as they were to Yahweh worship, and the temple is central to Yahweh worship, those physical structures are only a smaller part of a bigger picture. And that's what we see in chapter 8. Some of the most beautiful edifices I have ever seen when it comes to ecclesiology, some of the most beautiful churches I have ever seen are in Europe. I mean incredible churches. But they're empty. Physically and spiritually, most of them, far too many of them, they have incredible architecture. The original inhabitants, particularly the Protestant churches, took a lot of care and planning in the the direction the church would face, how the sun would come through certain windows and the the, the stained glass and all that. It's absolutely beautiful, but today, they're tourist attractions at best. If you go visit some of the places that you see from the outside, they're just absolutely stunning. If you do it on a Sunday morning, you'll see just a very small handful of people in a church that might fit 5,000 people. It's a beautiful building. And beautiful buildings are wonderful. And I'm not knocking them. And I pray that someday we'll have a permanent facility that's a beautiful building in the Lord's timing. But if we ever get that, don't think that it's all over then. It's just beginning. The beautiful building is just a, it's a place where we can worship. Again, it's a little different, I will admit that, before someone objects, Old Testament or New Testament, because they had to have the temple in order to worship Yahweh in the appropriate way in the Old Testament. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wherever we come, that's where God is present, and that's where we meet. I mean, this is, as as far as God's concerned, it's a wonderful, beautiful place that we have tonight, because we have 40, 50, 60, 70 people in here that are all the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. I, I get all that. But the point of application is, the physical structure is just the starting point. And Nehemiah knows it. And chapter 8 is a chapter of spiritual revival after the walls built, after all these wonderful, incredible things happened. Nehemiah didn't want what's going to happen later in Europe. He didn't want Jerusalem to be a place that had walls and had security and had a temple, but where no one was really worshiping Yahweh. So we see in in the first few verses of chapter 8, And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive 
to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. Ezra has gathered the people together. There is a platform that has been built. And on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra stands up and all day long reads the Mosaic law. This type of worship that's mentioned in this chapter reflects the type of worship that began back in Babylon. It reflects synagogue worship. In synagogue worship and in this worship, the people assemble. There is a request for the reading of Torah. Someone opens the scroll. The people stand. I've always felt that was interesting. In in synagogue worship, people would stand while the word was being read. They would sit while the exposition of the word was taking place. That's not a bad idea because it recognizes the significance of God's word. People assemble. There's a request for the reading of Torah. Someone opens the scroll. The people stand. Then someone, in this case, Ezra, offers praise. The people respond, and they receive instruction. Finally, the law was read. Again, an oral explanation follows. An exhortation also follows. And then people depart for a ritual meeting. That was typical synagogue worship, and that looks like the model that they're using here. They assemble at the water gate. It's not like the water gate hotel. The, the water gate, uh, this, is, this is one that's down toward the city of David. And they build a platform where Nehemiah and others can stand and proclaim the word of God to all who assemble. If there were... 30, 40, 50,000 people there, without any kind of microphone, it would have been impossible for everyone to have heard Ezra. It's very likely that some of these people that were standing with them would go out into the crowd, and they would read it to smaller groups as well. The first day of the seventh month was the day upon which the Israelites were supposed to be celebrating the Feast of the Trumpets, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 34. It's providential that this is the day that they gather together. The priests blew trumpets to assemble the people to announce God's working among them and to signal the preparation for Day of Atonement, which is going to follow 10 days later. Israel, a lot of things in Israel, matter of fact, all of life in Israel revolved around these feasts. And this was a significant feast. They would blow the trumpets. It was a joyous occasion. And then 10 days later, they have the most solemn of all a Jewish ritual, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They gather near the water gate. Even though Ezra reads the word of God for hours and hours upon end, the people remain attentive. Standing on this platform above the people, he read the law while 13 men, perhaps these men are priests, stand on the platform beside him. When he finishes, as in chapter 1, verse 5, and as chapter 4, verse 14, he praises God. There's a reading of the word, and then the praising of God. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. This used to bother me how people in the Old Testament would bless God. I thought God blessed us. I didn't think I had anything to bless him with. The words, especially in the Psalms, are used a little differently than we might think. When God blesses us, he's generally showing us grace, he's showing us mercy, he's giving us something in a a wonderful manner. When we bless God, 
It doesn't mean we're really giving God anything other than our praise. We're returning the, the thanks that he, for the benefits that he's given us with our voices in praise. That's how we bless God. So the believer blessing God means we're worshiping. So that's what's going on here. Ezra opened the book and recited all the people, for he was standing above all the people. When he opened it, all the people stood up, showing respect. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting their hands. And then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is a posture of humility. I think sometimes posture is important. I'm not talking about just for your spinal health. I'm talking about for the way that, that it expresses what's going on in one's soul. No, you can pray going 55 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone down the street, down the highway. You can do it, and God hears your prayer. There are times, maybe, when you might need to pull over at a rest stop and get on your knees and pray. I'm not saying so much that the posture of the prayer is going to make the prayer any more answered. But the posture of the prayer sometimes does reflect the person that's praying and the humility of soul. What this is showing, though, above all else, is something is happening with their attitude. Remember I told you for 13 years Ezra had ministered to these people, faithfully ministered to them. But something wasn't getting through. We know that from the earlier chapters. Remember when they were charging them usurious interest rates, brother against brother, they were doing whatever they could to, to squeeze every last shekel out of one of their fellow Israelites. And Nehemiah says, that's wrong. That was reflecting wrong thinking. So now they're reflect, that their thinking is much, much better than it was. Sometimes when you travel overseas and do Bible conferences and pastor conferences, you, you observe a phenomenon that I wish I could export back and show you on video, although I just don't think it would hold. And the phenomenon is something like this. You'll be scheduled to preach for an hour, hour and a half, perhaps two hours at a particular place. And for maybe five days, you're preaching all day, something like this. It is rare that the people are ready for you to go in the morning. There's always, hey, can we have a nighttime session tonight? Or can we extend this into Saturday? Is there any way you could come back next week? See, when you don't hear Bible teaching but once a year, people just drink it like they're dying of thirst in the desert. They just drink it up. And that's what these people were doing. They hadn't really, really listened in a long time. Ezra had been teaching them, but they hadn't really listened. Ezra had been doing what he could, but they weren't listening. Now, it's really wonderful the way it happens. Look at verse 8. They also read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. If you go back for just a second, up to verse 2, and then verse 3, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of the men and women and all who could listen with understanding. And then in verse 3, the men and women, those who could understand. This is a bit of a sensitive area, but I want to do the best I can to do proper exposition. We are what I heard called a generationally integrated church, fully integrated generational church, meaning we have all different kind of age groups. It's our policy in the worship service to have only those people in the worship service that can understand, that have the ability to understand the message that's being presented. 
That's why we have age group children's classes. Because there are certain things that are taught and that I want to teach at a certain level in the adult service that would be either meaningless or would be confusing. How are you going to do the rape of Dinah here four or five years from now? Ezra, in Nehemiah chapter 8, makes sure that the people that are there listed are the ones that can actually benefit from it. Because otherwise, the little, a little two-year-old in an adult worship service is going to get no spiritual benefit out of that worship service. And listen, I've got a five-month-old, six-month-old grandson. I'm not bringing him to our worship service. I love him to death. I showed you a picture of him the other night. Just kind of snuck it in. But it doesn't mean that he's going to benefit from being in this Bible study here tonight. But if he's two, if he's three years old, then he needs to be in a class where he's going to be taught something at his age group where he can understand. So I am not in favor of having the younger kids in with the adults. There's a, at the point in time when they can, according to verses 2 and 3, understand, when they have the ability to comprehend it, then yes. But otherwise, the younger kids, as much as I love them, can do nothing but potentially cause a distraction. That's why we have that particular policy. It's interesting that Ezra had the same policy. By the time we get to verse 8, something different is going on. It's not just that they could understand the concepts, but some of them may have had a, a difficult time understanding the language itself. The terminology that's used in verse 8 may mean when it says, and they read from the book from the law of God, translating to give the sense. That could be referring to translate. Now they're back in the land. Perhaps they didn't understand Hebrew. Some of them didn't. So people would have to translate it to these Jewish speakers. We kind of think of all of them speaking Hebrew, but that's, they didn't understand it. So some of the Jewish classes did not know Hebrew because they grew up in Babylon. That may be part of what is being meant in verse 8, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. But that word there can also be understood as interpreted or explained. Have you ever been reading through a passage during the devotional reading and you scratch your head after you finish and you say, what in the heck is that all about? What does that mean? And then you either you, you come to church or you have some sort of more formal Bible study and someone explains it to you and you say, oh, I get that. That's what that means. All that fits together for me now. Well, that's what's happening in verse 8. They're reading the law. Some people were apparently having to have it interpreted from Aramaic into he, from Hebrew into Aramaic for them. But then the rest of what's going on is they're doing an explanation of the text. Central to this worship service they're having is what we call today biblical exposition. That's taking a passage, reading through it in some form or fashion, and then explaining the passage. Not only did Ezra and his associates read and translate the law, they explained it, and just as importantly, they explained and suggested how that might be applied to the situation that people were in at the particular moment. A lot of expositors stop at the explaining. But that's not true biblical exposition. 
two biblical expositions explains it, interprets if you have, I mean, translates if you have to, but then explains what the passage means and then exhorts application based upon that explanation. Does that make sense? I hope it does. It's not just that a pastor or a teacher in any given setting has this information and they're, it's like having it in the back of a dump truck, backing that dump truck up to, into your soul and then dumping all that information into your soul. That's one thing, but it needs to be packaged in an appropriate way that's understandable, and there needs to be an exhortation to apply. Without the exhortation to apply that material, we are, as James says, fooling ourselves. We're deluding ourselves. People who just know a lot of the Word of God but don't do what they're supposed to do with the Word of God. That's what we mean by biblical exposition. That's what happens in the first eight verses. Now in verses 9 through 12, you see the response of the people, and it's phenomenal. Their initial reaction to the Word of God is to mourn and weep. But remember we said that this is during the Feast of the Trumpets. The Feast of the Trumpets is supposed to be a joyous time. So we're going to see... Nehemiah and Ezra discouraged them from weeping and asked them to be joyful. Verse 9, Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. I can see why that would happen, wouldn't you? If you've been living all this time, maybe you can't relate to this. In fact, I hope you can't relate to this. Because these people have been living out of fellowship with God for so long. And now they hear the word taught and they listen for a change. And they are exhorted to apply it. And they're changed. They're convicted by what they've heard. And there's been an exhortation to not only to listen to it, but to change behavior and go in a different direction. And yes, I think there would be some normal weeping and mourning at that point. Look at what happened to me in the past. Look, that was terrible what I did back there. And Nehemiah and Ezra are saying, okay, you've got that. You looked in the rearview mirror. Now turn around and look at what's in front of you. Remember how Paul said, forgetting what lays behind, I press forward to what's ahead of me. If you're driving a car at rush hour down the Gulf Freeway or Southwest Freeway or I-45 North, whatever you're doing, and you're constantly looking in the rearview mirror, What's going to eventually happen to you? You you have no future, I'm telling you that for sure, because you're going to wreck to the car that's in front of you. An occasional glance in the rearview mirror is healthy. For those of you that never look in the rearview mirror, it would be healthy to at least look back there sometimes. Now, my wife has this rule. I can only look in the rearview mirror a certain number of times per trip because I'm very concerned with what's going on behind me. And plus, I've got people that haven't even got to me yet. That's not what I'm talking about either. But an occasional glance in that rearview mirror will help us remember from which we came. And it should remind us that we don't want to cover that same territory again, do we? That's what's happening with these people. They look back in the rearview mirror through the lens of the Word of God and says, oh my goodness, that was terrible. And Nehemiah and Ezra would say, yes, it was. It was terrible. And you don't need to go that way again. Now, quit mourning and weeping. This should be a time of rejoicing. Set your eyes on what's ahead and then look to the future. You cannot do a thing about what's happened to you in the past. You can use that to motivate you not to do it again. Listen, we have all failed. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, every single one of us. I'm talking about as believers, we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
We've all done that, and I'm not excusing it, and I'm not saying it's insignificant, but I'm saying there's not very much you can do about that. Forget what lays behind for a while and move forward to what lays ahead. Every now and then, if you need to, look up in that rearview mirror and say, yeah, that was a bad time. Don't want to do that again. No, don't want to repeat that again. But if, if we're driving, going this way, looking like that, you've got no future. This is one of the things that's happening between verses 9 and 12. Then he said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our God, to our Lord. Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yeah, you messed up. You've gotten past that. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to see something like confession. You've gotten past that. Now it's time to look to the future. And how did this happen? Rejoice. Isn't it wonderful that you finally got it right? Once you've got it right, what's the point of mourning all day that you had it wrong then? I'm not trying to get antinomian. Please don't even dream of accusing me of that. That, that would be so far off the map, it's not even fair. What I'm trying to say is, yes, sin is bad. And yes, these people had been involved in a lot of it, apparently. They were great people in Ephraim. They weren't listening to what he said. But that's in the past now. They've got it right. Let's look forward to the future with joy. Use the past to help you from ever having to do that again. But don't live in it. That's the response of the people. By the way, the Mosaic Law forbade eating fat. So probably not meant to be taken literally. Nehemiah probably meant that people should eat and drink appropriate food for a joyous feast. That's what's going on. They were going to party. They were going to have a real good spiritual party. You can do that, you know. The exposition of the scriptures taught the Israelites God's will, convicted them of their sin, corrected their conduct, and then equipped them for every good work. Once the conduct is corrected, then the, the outcome that we're looking to see is what's going to happen into the future. You've heard this passage before. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction, in righteousness, that the man of God might be mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. One of the key ideas in there is that the, the man of God, or the woman of God as well, might be mature. That's what we're looking for. And if we're living in the past, you're never going to get mature in the future. Again, please, I must say it one more time. I'm not excusing anything. I'm not encouraging sin. What I'm saying is that once you've done it and you've confessed it and you've repented of it, move on. Start moving ahead or you're never going to move to maturity. And this is what Nehemiah wanted for his people. This is what Paul means in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. For correction. Are we going to look at the Word of God and change the behavior based upon it? Or do we look at the Word of God and say, you know, I think I'm going to skip that part. I'm not ready to deal with that thing. I've got a pastor saying that. Yeah, I'm not ready to deal with that thing. Well, then you better hang it up and go your way because you're going to get back here. That's not, that's not an attitude. We've assembled on people like that. God ought not be any of our attitude. When, the, when you come face to face with something that needs correction, and the Word of God has shown that that's it, then we need to get it corrected for instruction in righteousness. Do you see the, the dichotomy there? The correction is not doing what's back here, and the instruction in righteousness, let's go forward this direction. But there's a result that's expected. Why 
Why is this God's divinely ordained procedure that the man of God, the woman of God, the person of God, might be mature? Not perfect. That's a, that's a misunderstanding of that stuff, that passage. Nobody's going to be perfect. But might be mature in the faith. And once one is matured, you're thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, you've got to do the good work here in the, in the future. Once more, if all you're doing is looking at the past, you're not going to ever have time to do any good work because you're so mournful over what happened in the past. Yes, mourn. Yes, grieve. But then get over it and get moving again. Knowledge of the Word of God does not guarantee that someone will become spiritually mature. Did you hear that? Knowledge of the Word of God does not guarantee that someone will become spiritually mature. But a lack of knowledge of the Word of God does mean that that individual will not become spiritually mature. The knowledge of the Word of God doesn't guarantee that one is going to become spiritually mature. You've got to do something with it. That's why that last phrase is in there, that we might be equipped for every good work. We take it and we apply it. We learn more and then we apply it. But we could say the, the other direction. If you lack a knowledge of the Word of God, it does mean that you are not mature. There are no mature believers out there that don't know something of the Word of God. It doesn't work that way. We cannot be mature in our relationship with God apart from the knowledge of the Word of God. Now, you can be a wonderful person. You can be somebody's presence to be around. You can say, I love Jesus, and you can mean it up to a certain degree, but you cannot be a mature, what the Bible defines as a mature person. You cannot be a mature person in Christ apart from the knowledge of the Word of God. And it's a lifetime pursuit. The leadership in Israel discovered that they are at a period of time on the calendar where the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles should be celebrated. They had been doing it for years. Verse 13. Actually, verse 12. All the people went away to eat and drink and to sing portions and celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Have you ever had a great experience at a Bible class or a Sunday morning worship service and gone out and celebrated? I know some of you probably have. I don't have it in the right way. Wow, I understand that better now. I know God better now than I used to. Let's celebrate. That ought to be cause for celebration, shouldn't it? Every bit as much as your favorite ball team winning their game, it, it should be a greater cause of celebration. Now I get it. Then on the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests, I'm in verse 13, the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Isn't it interesting what they got in trouble with all this from there? And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. The first day of the seventh month right now. It's going to be on the tenth day of the seventh month. It's going to be the Day of Atonement. But once we get to the fifteenth of the seventh month, that's when they're supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. That was celebrated from the 15th through the 22nd. One of the greatest feasts that Israel celebrated, one of the three great feasts, was the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrating the completion of the agricultural year, hence the celebration toward the end of the 15th. 
The Jews, to celebrate this, at least were supposed to. They didn't do this the way they were supposed to for many, many years, but they were supposed to build booths or tabernacles, in other words, temporary dwelling places, and they were to live in them for these days from the 15th to the 22nd to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt by the hand of God. That's Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 40. That was the purpose. We don't do things like that. I wonder if maybe we ought to sometimes. They, they were very physical in their worship. And in order so that they would get the point, God had this feast where they would go out and cut limbs and they would make tents for themselves, temporary dwellings, and they would live in that place to remember. We say, remember the Alamo. I've been to Alamo as a boy, I've been there as an adult, and I stand in front of it, I remember there's that structure, there's that unmistakable chapel. And I remember what happened there. Well, when the Jews would put together these huts and live in them for a week, remember the exodus. Remember our deliverance. Verse 15, so they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths. As it is written, so the people went out and bought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their court, in the courts of the house of God, in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. Can't tell you for sure where the gate of Ephraim was. I've looked and looked, and some people have ideas that it may have been in the north part of the city. But nevertheless, what they're doing is they're going to celebrate this in two different locations. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. And the sons of Israel had indeed not done from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, and there was great rejoicing. They had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, don't misunderstand. They just hadn't celebrated it with this kind of rejoicing. All from the time of Joshua up until now. Isn't it wonderful when people are starving spiritually that they get spiritual bread? When they're dying of spiritual thirst, when they drink a, a drink of spiritual water, they are so happy. Sometimes I wish that we could all recover that kind of and I wish, and my wish for all of us is we don't have to get into the depths of sin in order to do that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just one day wake up and really appreciate God's self-disclosing sinners and how we would be nothing without it, but our life would be so wonderful were it not. When the altar was completed in 536 B.C., the people celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. We learned that in Ezra chapter 3, verse 4. But here, the joy and the involvement of all the people is so much greater than it was back in our study in Ezra. Ezra will read the law then during this Feast of Tabernacles because Moses indicated that's what's supposed to be done for every seven years. I want you to kind of get the, the timing here. It's the first of the month. They meet together. Ezra reads the law for hours. The people are convicted and they change. They have the Day of Atonement 10 days later, which is not mentioned here. But then on the 22nd, it took them about two weeks or so to prepare. Then the law is read to them again, and they still can't get it all done. And the assembly, verse 17, and the assemblies of those who returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, to that day, and there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law of God daily, which is for seven days. And they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. There's going to be more to it than what we 
you've seen here tonight, that this is where we're going to stop. Rebuilding the wall was a significant, significant historical event in Israel's history. But it was important because it led to worship of Yahweh in the fullest sense. In chapter 8, we see that principal leadership is concerned with the long-term spiritual status of those that they lead. Not just the short-term spiritual status, but the long-term spiritual status. Anyone who has your best interest in mind wants you not just to grow today, but wants to set up some sort of structure that you can grow today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Any pastor wants every single one of his flock to hear a well done at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what I want for every, that's what I want for me, and that's what I want for every one of you as well. And Nehemiah wanted that for these people. Long-term spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, if you will, is directly tied into exposition and then the